If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to Micah chapter 5. Micah is one of the minor prophets, minor in length, not in importance, as it's been said. Um, when Gary Huckabee recently taught a Sunday school class on the minor prophets, he, he called it the, uh, the book of the twelve, or the twelve prophets, I believe, the latter, um, to, uh, to give it a little bit of a, uh, to show the, the unity that's there in those twelve prophets. But um, Micah, if you find Isaiah, which might be familiar, keep turning to the right a little bit. Um, if you have one of the Pew Bibles, I think it's page 778 or somewhere close to it. Without further ado, hear the reading of God's holy and errant word. I'm going to start in Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Read through verse 6. It says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. One who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads on our palaces, then, he will, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the Lord, the, oh, excuse me, shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword in the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, Flower fades, word of our God stands forever. We've already asked him to bless the reading of his word, but let's do it once more. Let's pray. Oh God, you are good, and all that you do is good. During this Christmas season, as we anticipate and celebrate our Savior's birth, would you help us to see him in this passage? Would you help us to see how he meets all of our needs and more? We ask it in his name. Amen. At my worst, I look at life as a series of things to get through. And when I get through them, then I will relax and enjoy myself and be in a better mood. At my worst. And when I get through this pandemic, I will work on that attitude. It's a joke. Thank you. You got it. I'm working on that attitude now. Trying more and more to give thanks in all circumstances, even when I'm not thankful for the particular circumstances. Trying to rejoice always. Trying to stop, smell the roses, to see God's mercies that are made new every morning. I'm trying. But I have good news. One day, that series of hard things really will be over. One day, you and I will relax. We will experience joy unspeakable. We will be in a much better mood, a sinless mood. Because one day in the words of Tolkien, all the sad things will become untrue. Don't make the same mistake as me at my worst. Don't 
live life as a series of things to endure until your real life starts. But don't make the opposite error either. Don't grow cynical. Don't assume that the present struggles will never go away. Don't assume that God can't change your circumstances, even though we can also be content. We can do that if life stays exactly the same as it is. And finally, don't forget, God is making all things new. God is sending a Redeemer, a Ruler, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Your circumstances right now are exactly what God wants them to be for reasons He may or may not reveal. Adjust your attitudes accordingly. But that does not mean your circumstances can't change doesn't mean they will never change because one day they will change. One day a ruler will rise from dark times and small beginnings according to God's ancient plan to give God's people permanent relief. Permanent relief. That's another reason why God became man. That was true 2,700 years ago when Micah wrote. It was true 2,000 years ago when Jesus came as an infant, and it's true for us now, 2,000 years after Messiah's birth, as we await his return when he will complete the mission that he started. Four points this morning. The first one is this a ruler from small beginnings. A ruler from small beginnings. That's what we see at the beginning of verse 2. Are leaders born or are they made? What's more important, nurture or nature? Now, I think the answer, best answer, is both to those things. But it gets at something else. It is very common today, and not simply in comic book movies, the so-called origin story. Does your past shape your present? Does it determine who you are? thought this was interesting recently. I was listening to a podcast about the life of John Calvin, a huge figure, and church history, and the speaker said, interestingly, we know very little about his childhood. In essence, he was saying we don't really know his origin story. So let me ask all this a different way. Do great men have to come from great beginnings? Do they need good genes on both sides or wealth or athletic ability or the best schools and all these things? Can great men come from small beginnings? Can God display His strength in our weakness? Not only can He, He often does. That's what you see in Micah 5, the promise of a great ruler from small beginnings. Read verse 2 with me. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. We'll deal with the last part of that in a moment. Uh, But a ruler will be born, it says, in a small, unknown city. Oh, the world knows about Bethlehem now. The Christmas carols about it. But not back then. It was a small, out-of-the-way place. It wasn't necessarily a one-stoplight town. Not that they had stoplights back then. But it certainly wasn't Jerusalem either wasn't a player on the world stage. They were too little, as it says. Their residents were small compared to the other clans of the tribe of Judah. Now, there are no divinely inspired maps in the Bible, though we suspect that 
historians can usually produce accurate ones, but Bethlehem is not on the map of the Bible. What map do I mean? I mean the verbal map that's in Joshua, all the lists of cities that Joshua says Israel has conquered and occupied. It's not there. In the words of Bruce Waltke, Bethlehem is, quote, too little, too despised, and too weak to be mentioned. And keep in mind, if you glance back at verse 1, which we admittedly usually skip in, in our Advent readings, you'll see that Israel was under siege at this time. Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. They prophesied about the same time. And in verse 6, you'll notice he mentions the enemy. It's familiar to us, familiar to Isaiah, Assyria. Same enemy, same story in a sense, different vantage point than what we've seen in our sermons on Isaiah. So Bethlehem, they're weak, they're despised. Their situation, Israel's situation, is dire. They're being invaded. Dale Ralph Davis says this is, quote, the setting for God's work, complete humiliation. Here is what looks like a total demise of the Davidic dynasty. This is so often where God begins in our abysmal helplessness. Of course, God doesn't end at verse 1 when the, when the siege comes. No, he says through Micah the prophet, verse 2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, if you say Ephrathah, by the way, the key is just say it confidently and quickly and everyone will think you, you know how to pronounce it. A little secret for you. But Ephrathah, the clan, it's not the same as Ephraim, another tribe of Israel. This small city, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, this is where the ruler will come from. And how appropriate of a birthplace for Jesus, meek and mild, who was, as somebody points out, born in a stable, whose birth was announced to lowly shepherds, who was circumcised by parents too poor to offer as their sacrifice anything more than turtle doves or young pigeons. Why mention the birds? Well, if you read Luke 2, when Jesus is baptized, it mentions the birds that they bring is a sacrifice. And you see the average first century Jew or anyone who reads Leviticus 12, 8. I'm sure that was your devotional reading this morning. It was a joke. And they would have known that that was the food stamps offering, the poor person's offering. I'm not trying to be irreverent. I'm trying to tell you that Jesus' parents were poor. Joseph was a carpenter, but he was not the carpenter who owned the unfurnished finister. Uh, hold on. He wasn't the guy who owned the unfinished furniture store down on North Nevada. Good store, by the way. He was the carpenter who lived paycheck to paycheck, project to project. He couldn't afford a lamb. So, as the law allowed, he bought two birds instead, common birds that were easily acquired. Poor little Bethlehem would be the quiet town where poor, literally, Poor, unassuming baby Jesus was born. Who would have expected greatness to come from here? But that's the point. God is, as one person says, showing that Israel's future greatness does not depend on a great human king, but on divine intervention to bring greatness out of nothing. Messiah's success, he says, depends on God's election, intervention, and empowering. God often does this. 
he often chooses what Davis calls the obscure, the insignificant, the lowly, the common, the unnoticed, as the very instruments through which he displays the brightest flashes of his glory. In choosing little, lowly Bethlehem is the Savior's birthplace, maybe one of his greatest hits. Doesn't mean it's his last hit, by the way. You know, if the, if the Rolling Stones can still go on tour with an average age of 76, then Yahweh, the covenant Lord, can still make something out of nothing. He can still make lemonade out of your lemons. He can still bring help and deliverance from unexpected places. That's what we learn about this ruler. He is a ruler from small beginnings. He is also, secondly, a ruler from ancient beginnings. That's our second point. A ruler from ancient beginnings. Verse 2b, the second half of the verse. <clears throat> You'll notice verse 2, it also mentions this ruler from Bethlehem. His coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Two basic options about what that means. One, either God planned this ruler from before the foundation of the earth. Or secondly, God is connecting this ruler with the last big ruler to come from Bethlehem, King David. Now, they're not mutually exclusive options, you see. It's just a matter of which one is he trying to point out in this passage. The scholars I read seem to prefer the second option, but even they would admit both senses of that are true. Because God's covenant with David, which Jesus ultimately fulfills, Matthew 1 makes that clear, God's covenant with David has eternal roots. In other words, God's covenant with David, it's an expansion of the covenant promise that we read in Genesis 3 just last week. God is going to crush the ultimate enemy of his people. And how's he going to do that? He will crush Satan, sin, and death. And he'll do it through this ruler. The Messiah, Messiah's relationship to David is well established in many places in the Bible. Isaiah 7, 9, 11, Matthew 1, this passage here. Ralph Davis says, when you read Bethlehem, you should think Davidsburg. It's what should be in your mind. Now, why is that important? Well, many reasons. Among them, God does, as we said bring strength out of weakness. Messiah, his birthplace is unexpected. But he, in all the details about him, they are not unplanned. Unexpected maybe by us, unplanned. Don't think of it. God has a plan. He had a plan. And at this time, many people in Israel probably thought, maybe the plan has been canceled. After all, we've blown it. We've sinned so much that, that we're probably headed for exile. God is no longer obligated to fulfill His covenant. We're horrible, awful. The problem is God does not lie. He cannot lie. And even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. This ruler comes from small beginnings, namely Bethlehem, David's hometown, in his beginnings, they are from ancient days, all the way back when David began to rule, years before this, which ultimately means those plans can be traced back even further than that. 
I already mentioned Micah 5.1. God says a siege is coming. Uh, Davis, the commentator I mentioned, he said it's, it's the demise, supposedly, apparently, of the Davidic dynasty and the Davidic covenant. But later that same person says this. This continuation of the Davidic dynasty that's mentioned here that is going to sprout up in David's hometown. This shows what he calls the indefectibility of God's promise. Indefectibility. Spellcheck says it's a word. God's word, scripture, cannot be broken. And if you're waiting for God's promises to bloom and blossom in your life, then you need to know that, that they cannot be broken. And you're not the first one who's needed that type of assurance or reassurance. And all that leads to our next point. This ruler, from small beginnings, is also from ancient beginnings. He's unexpected by us, but not unplanned by God. And he is also, thirdly, a ruler to restore the remnant. A ruler to restore the remnant. It's our third point. It's also from verse 3. You know, because we've talked about the remnant so much in Isaiah lately, I'm going to shift our emphasis slightly. We're going to briefly describe the restoration of the remnant, what that looks like, but then we're going to examine how long the remnant had to wait for that restoration. Verse 3 says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in, birth, uh, is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. True, the remnant is not named the remnant here. But if you look, Micah mentions the remnant by name in chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 5, verse 7. And the same concept is present here, right in the middle of that. The rest of his brothers, the rest of Messiah's estranged brothers will return. Probably reminds you of the promise of Isaiah 7, the remnant shall return. And as we've said before, the remnant will return by repenting, by turning from sin and turning to their Savior. Or as it says here, by returning to the people of Israel. Return in, in new unity through faith in the one Messiah. To borrow from Galatians 6, they will become part of the Israel of God, believers truly from the heart, not simply by ethnic association or some other relationship. But notice it says all this will not happen until, until she has given birth, until after he gives them up for a time. This is written around 700 BC, within a decade or two of that. Mary gave birth to Jesus some 700 years later. And the 700 years in between were not the glory days for Israel. They were dark. They were depressing. They were taken into captivity, caused by military failure, which was actually caused by spiritual failure in this case. And for 400 of those 700 years, there was no prophetic word from God. Silence. Nothing. And unlike today, when we have the end of the story told to us ahead of time. They did not know when relief would come, so they waited. That's why one Christmas carol says, Come, thou 
long-expected Jesus. It's why Simeon jumps for joy in Luke chapter 2 when he sees baby Jesus. He says, uh, I I forget the, the literal quote, but it's something like this. Now I can die in peace. I think he says, now I can depart. The last part is this, because my eyes have seen your salvation. And of course, Simeon is not saying this because he sees a king in an army who's going to drive out the Romans. No, he says it about a baby. Ray Ortland, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is an infant, is a child. They were waiting for relief. But the relief didn't look quite like what they thought it would. Can you identify with that? Are you waiting Waiting for God's relief. Do God's promises feel to you as if they've expired? Are you waiting for the restoration of the remnant and all that comes with it? Does the wait seem too long? John Calvin, same guy we mentioned earlier, he says, Micah proclaims that even the faithful will experience being given up for a time. And why is that? That is why he warns you that you might be disposed to receive your afflictions with patience. Isn't God kind to tell us sometimes it will get dark? Expect this. Don't be surprised. About a century after Calvin, a group of men got together at the request of the English parliament to essentially settle a religious dispute in England uh, and the the greater uh, United Kingdom. Their mission was something like this. Tell us what the whole Bible teaches, whether this was their actual stated mission or this is what they actually did. The second one might be more accurate. They got together and they decided, we're going to try to say, what does the whole Bible teach about the most important points of religion? Today, we call it the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, our church's doctrinal standards. But in this confession of their faith, they wrote this, chapter 18, section 4. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways, shaken, diminished, intermitted. How will that happen? By negligence in preserving of it. That's one way it might happen. By falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit. By sudden or vehement temptation. By God's withdrawing the light of His countenance in suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and have no light, yet, yet, they are never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may, in due time, be revived and by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. At the risk of oversimplification, they are saying, it can get really dark, really dark, even for true Christians. You could call this the dark night of the soul, the bleak midwinter that precedes Christmas. It's been said it gets darkest right before the dawn, But that does not mean the sun will forget to rise. That does not mean God will forget his promises. That does not mean God will forsake his people, his remnant, who he promises to restore. 
in proper time. That restoration, of course, happened in a large way after the birth of Jesus. The first small group that founded the church as we know it had 13 members, one of whom betrayed Jesus, the best small group leader there ever was. And out of those 13, the early church exploded around the known world. Again, God brought deliverance out of obscurity, out of small beginnings, unexpected by us, but not unplanned by Him. And you see, even when there's a long wait, He still fulfills His promises to us, His people. And there is a sense where we are still waiting for the full remnant of the faithful to be brought in. Some have not yet believed and come to Christ. Some have believed, but we have not reached our true home yet. But we can be sure that we will. And that leads to our last point this morning. After a ruler to restore the remnant, we also see fourthly and finally a ruler to restore shalom. A ruler to restore shalom. Verses 4 and 5. Shalom is the word that we often translate as peace, but it's more than peace. Let's look at the beginning of verse 4. It says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Now we could explain each of those phrases. Instead, I'm going to summarize and illustrate. My summary, he will stand, he will do all that a good shepherd should do. Because the Lord will strengthen him. Because, of course, this ruler and shepherd, he is the Lord. He will do all that a good shepherd should do. Every night at bedtime, except in December when we sing a Christmas carol, we sing this song in my house based on Psalm 23. For my shepherd gently guides me, knows my need and well provides me, loves me every day the same even calls me by my name. Now maybe you're too old, too tough, too cynical to appreciate that. If so, I'm sorry. Because isn't this what we all want? Guidance, provision, the stuff I need to get by, love, acceptance, friends who know your name and all the other stuff that makes you you? Isn't that what most of our effort is trying to secure or acquire? And what would you do if someone promised it for free to a bunch of undeserving nobodies, to the little town of Bethlehem and generations of others who are just as insecure? Maybe you'd be skeptical. (sighs) Too good to be true. But wouldn't you want to at least investigate it more just to be sure if so then come and see it's what Jesus said to his first disciples in John chapter 1 come and see come and see if this savior isn't all that he's cracked up to be come and see if this good shepherd won't stand and shepherd you the good shepherd who stands that we might sit look at the rest of verse 4 He shall stand and shepherd his flock, skip down, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Dwell. He'll dwell secure. That word dwell is often translated sit. 
in other contexts. Now, it's not a bad translation to say dwell. It's just an extra nuance that's there in the Hebrew. One commentator picks up on this and he says, because he stands and vigilantly shepherds, they sit and enjoy security. Remember my song from just a second ago. It's in the Trinity hymnal. I've just forgotten the name. But before the gently guides me, well provides me part, it says this, I am Jesus' little lamb, ever glad at heart I am. You see, because he well provides for me, I am glad. Glad at heart, content like a little careless, clueless lamb because I have a good shepherd who guides me in paths of righteousness right where he wants me. And when it gets dark, I didn't know Stephen was going to mention the valley of the shadow of death in his prayer. When it gets dark, I will not fear, for he is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. A staff to direct me where I need to go. A rod, a club to guard me, to beat up the lions and tigers and bears, oh my, who want to harm me. You see, this is not a Pollyanna prophecy. You know, in one sense, I'd love it if we could all just hold hands and sing kumbaya and watch all our fears float away. But that is not how God's kingdom will come. One day, it says, he will arise. And those who have not trusted in him, they will be punished and purged so that God's people might dwell secure. Waltke says it this way, for God's people to enjoy security, all her enemies must be crushed. And as I said a few weeks ago, our enemies are those who hate us, whom we are called to love until they repent or until Jesus returns. You're still called to love them after they repent, by the way. It might just not be as hard then. Davis says it like this. He will come in peace after he has won the victory. Peace is almost equivalent to victory. Peace does not mean one never fights. Peace is what comes after you win the fight. He then points to the words of Romans 16.20. Somewhat ironic. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Crushing the serpent's head. Reversing the curse. Crushing those who never repent. That is necessary to restore peace. For God's people, the beginning of verse 5, summing this section up, says, And he shall be their peace. How do we get back to the paradise we once had in Eden? How will we get to that glorious garden city that's described in Revelation 22? How will we find the peace we once had, the peace we still long for, the peace that's more than peace, the peace that represents wholeness, preservation, salvation, shalom. How do we get that peace? Not by our own effort, not by our own hands. We get it by trusting in our ruler and defender, Jesus Christ. Only he can bring the peace we need. He may bring it in part while we dwell on this earth, but to have it in full, that only comes at the end. Don't wait to live your life until that day comes. But live your life like that day is coming right now. Because that ruler that we need, 
He has already come once. And he promises to come again. And until then, we wait for him with patience. And we say, come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and your kindness to us never fails. Father, we, we long for the coming of our Savior. He has come once and he has secured all the salvation and freedom that we need. But Father, we long to taste it in full. And so we still say, come, thou long expected Jesus. We can't wait for the day when his kingdom, your kingdom will come in full. And Father, until then, let us live in light of all the peace and freedom that you have purchased for us, which we have already tasted in part, which we will one day taste in full. Be with us. Bless us for Jesus' sake. We ask it in his name. Amen.